if you were to ask realtors, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you were to ask a, a realtor, the, the, the key to a successful real estate listing, oftentimes what you would hear and you would receive the reply is that it's location, location, location. A piece of property in a desirable location brings top dollar. Even a good piece of property in an undesirable location doesn't necessarily do the same. Location is important. Same is true when it comes to Scripture interpretation and understanding as well. Now, we wouldn't use the word location necessarily. We'd use the word context. First rule of biblical interpretation, context, context, context. Always look at the context around the passage of Scripture that you're studying. All Scripture is given in a specific context, and that is true in our text even for this morning. We've been looking at Luke chapter 16. You'll remember some of the immediate context of that. The, 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 the context and the focus of what we have within this chapter is Jesus' teaching on wealth, on personal possessions, he begins the chapter in the opening verses with this parable of this shrewd manager. He was dishonest, no, 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 no holds barred. He was dishonest. He was a crook through and through, but he was very shrewd in the way he acted on relationship to personal possessions and finances. And Jesus says, I want you to emulate him, not in his dishonesty, but in the shrewd and the wise way that he uses personal possessions and wealth. For followers of Christ, remember, we are to use our material possessions, our wealth with shrewdness, not dishonestly, but honestly, for the sake of the kingdom of God. God has blessed you in order that you might be able to turn around and use those blessings in a way to advance the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus's, or excuse me, the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' teaching was, that they ridiculed him. They made fun of him because they had this notion that I, I really think we can probably understand if we think about it. They had this notion that if someone had personal wealth, if someone was considered rich in their society, and their culture, well, it meant that they were blessed by God. The reason they were wealthy is because God had blessed them with this wealth. And we know that's not always the case. We can look at people who are as crooked as a dog's hind leg and yet very wealthy. And so we know that just because someone has wealth, that does not mean that they have received that as God saying, I'm pleased with your life, I'm happy with what you're doing here. Just like in, in distinction to that, someone who does not have a lot, it doesn't mean that God is mad at them in some way. What's happened so often, and I think we have a tendency to do this even today, is we look at wealth and we say, oh, well, God must be happy with them, that's why they have so much. We look at someone that has little and say, well, they must not be living right, and therefore they don't have that. We, we've, we've bought into this so often, especially in American culture, maybe not on the, the latter example, but certainly on the former example of one having great wealth. And we think, oh, they must be blessed by God, they must be doing things well and doing things right. 
And so Jesus is kind of counteracting that philosophy that the Pharisees had. The Pharisees were a, a very powerful religious and political group during the time of Jesus. They had taken the law of God. They, they, in all honesty, had a very high view of the law of God. But they had broken down the law of God and they had extrapolated out of the law of God all of these other subparts and subtexts and subsections that you had to follow in order to fully follow the law of God, especially it revolved around the issue of observing the Sabbath and uh, things of that nature. And so if you didn't do this on the Sabbath, or if you did do this on the Sabbath, their day of worship, then you were unclean. And if you were unclean, you had to come to them, you had to be made clean before you could participate. And so it was a very controlling thing that they had going on. They had all of the man-made rules and regulations that they appended to the law of God given to them. And then we have in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, this astounding statement that Jesus makes. This is kind of the key verse in all of chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is making it abundantly clear that money can be a tremendous distraction from the things of God. Material wealth, material possessions can draw you away from God. You cannot serve both of them. You will love the one, despise the other, serve the one, hate the other, Jesus says. And then in the midst of the Pharisees ridiculing him for all of this, he says, let me show you an example of what I mean. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16, Verse 19. Let's read it together this morning. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In a great cross, 
in, 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 in a great contrast, we see this rich man and this poor man. Looking at it from our perspective, the rich man is the one blessed by God. From our perspective, this rich man is the one upon whom surely God has said, I am pleased. And the poor man, in distinction from that, is the one with whom God is not pleased. Or his state would be different than it is. And yet we see within this that God takes the entirety of this mindset and he flips it on its end. What we have here is a story of differences, a story of contrasts, a story of comparisons. It's a story of reality. It's a story of two men, two lives, two deaths, two destinations. There have been questions asked as to whether this is a parable that Jesus has told or whether this is a histor historical event that Jesus tells. If it is a parable, it's unique in that it is the only parable mentioned by Jesus that, that calls someone by name Lazarus and Abraham as well within this. Ultimately, we can, we can quibble back and forth about whether it's a historical event or it's a parable. It makes no difference whatsoever. The truth is still as relevant within this regardless of what it is. And so I say it's a it's historical parable. How's that? We'll combine the two together and say it accomplishes the purpose of both. Notice the differences that Jesus points out between these two men that we have here. We have the rich man, first of all. We're told in verse 19 that he was clothed in purple. Purple was the color of royalty. It was extremely expensive to make. The dye was made from sea snails. And so the dye was used to make this purple cloth was was outrageously expensive. Not only did he have the, the outer clothing in purple, but he had the inner clothing of fine linen as well. This is, this is a man who had all the luxuries that the world could afford. He had all of the status you could achieve. He had anything that his heart desired. He feasted sumptuously, not just on occasion, but every single day of his life. He had it all. And yet there was something missing in his life. That something was the thing that mattered most, the only thing that his possessions could not afford him. And then, in distinction from that, we have this beggar man named Lazarus. We're told that in verse 20 that this, this man, Lazarus, was laid at the gate of this rich man. The, the word literally means to be cast at his gate. This, this man, Lazarus, laid at the gate of the entrance to the home of this rich man, it, it gives us the very distinct impression that Lazarus was paralyzed. He was crippled in some way. He didn't make his own way to the gate, hoping that this rich man and all of his rich friends might have mercy on him and give him something. No, somebody, and apparently the only act of mercy he received by any human touch at all, someone would bring him and they would cast him down at the gate, the entrance to the home of this wealthy man. He had nothing. He had nothing at all. Scraps, cast off things of others. As many of the possessions as the rich man had, this poor man had only sores in their place. 
We're told that really the only source of comfort and companionship he had were the dogs that would come by to see him. Now, the dogs weren't like the dogs that we have today. You know, we, we domesticate them. We bring them into the home. We love them. They, they, they lick on us, and, uh, and we make them pets. They live with us. They sleep with us. We've made pets out of them. Nothing would have been the case here. They were scavengers. They were, they were mongrels. Just roaming around the city trying to find a scrap, a morsel, anything that they could to satiate their, their thirst and their hunger. We're told that they came and in his paralyzed state, this man Lazarus was unable even to shoo away the dogs from him. Pitiful situation. A pitiful sight to see this man laid at the feet of such opulence and such majesty. When I, when I lived in Dallas, Texas and went to school there, there was a a stretch of road, Swiss Avenue, you would not believe the homes that you would find on Swiss Avenue. Immaculate, mansion-level homes that you would see lining the streets in both directions. Absolutely fascinating homes. And then you travel one block over and you see destitution, hopelessness, poverty at some of its highest levels. That's kind of what was taking place here, although there it was simply houses and yards and cars. Here in Jesus' story, it was people. This man who had everything that life could afford and laid literally at his gate was a man who had nothing. And we're told here that Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He wanted just the crumbs. He wanted the scraps. It's interesting that we are told that Lazarus desired this, but we're never told that that desire was met. The implication is given here that this man would come out of his immaculate home, his mansion, his place of wealth, prosperity, and perhaps walk by Lazarus every day. You can imagine him taking some of that fine linen or some of that purple cloth and covering his nose as he walked by so that he wouldn't smell the stench emanating from Lazarus laid there at his gate. Kind of like in the story of the Good Samaritan. Or the priest and the Levite walk by and see this man in utter desperation and they walk by on the other side of the street instead of extending help and hope. So we see the same thing with this rich man and Lazarus. There were social differences. There were cultural differences as well. You read about them there in verse 22. The poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, a synonym of heaven. We read that the rich man also died and was buried. For, for Lazarus, nothing is mentioned of a burial for him. Nothing is mentioned of a burial place for him. Nothing is mentioned of mourners coming to attend his funeral. Nothing of that nature. In fact, chances are 
that just as he had been carried on occasion to the home of this rich man, likewise now he had been carried, carried to the final destination of his earthly body. It was, um, well, it was the local dump outside the gates of the city. There they would burn trash. There they would throw the bodies of people that had no provisions made for death. And he was treated just as a pile of refuse. All of his life, or at least the extent of it that we're told here, he had been offered nothing, he had received nothing, and so now even in his death he receives nothing, not even a, a burial plot in which to place him. No, no one ordered flowers for him, no one mourned his passing. He would just have simply been dumped out in the dump with the rest of the trash that was to be thrown out. No more attention was paid to him in death than was paid to him in life. And yet we read that this rich man died and was buried. It would be an elaborate thing in that culture, especially for a wealthy man who has died, who was buried. There would be professional mourners that would be paid to come and attend the funeral and cry and wail and moan at the passing of this man as they went to their place where he would be buried above ground in, a, in, a, in the side of a cave or something of that nature. This, this rich man was taken well care of in every detail of this. Everything was planned. Everything was prepared for. Everything, of course, would have been paid for. And with all of the customary pageantry, the final wishes of this man were carried out for his body. Lazarus was just thrown out like he usually was. But in what really brings the big turn of events, we see that there are eternal differences. We're told that this poor man died, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He was ushered into the presence of eternal joy and peace upon his death. At some point, this poor man, Lazarus, has trusted in the plan of God for salvation, and he has seen this now come about. He has seen the fruition of it in his life, and he is ushered into the presence of the Lord. The, the euphemism that is put there, he is at Abraham's side. He is in his heavenly dwelling. And can I just say to you as an aside this morning, as great encouragement to you, because we live in these bodies that are constantly wasting away, are constantly degrading, are constantly slowing down, I want you to understand that for followers of Jesus Christ, the Word of God makes it clear to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in His presence forever, beginning at that moment that death takes our last breath from us. Wasn't the case, though, for this rich man? We're told that this rich man is immediately as Lazarus was in his heavenly dwelling, the rich man was carried away into eternal punishment. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, being in torment. You, you see the condition of this man who had it all in life? He thought everything was taken care of. He's got everything that life could afford him, but he did not realize that one day every bit of that would be gone and he would step into an eternity with or without Christ, in his case, without Christ. We're told that he's in torment. There was a physical torment to this. 
in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side, and he called out, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Even in his hellacious experience after death, he looks no more meaningfully upon Lazarus as he did in life. Even here, Lazarus is nothing more than an errand boy to achieve what he desires. Send, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish here. I read passages of this nature and I hear what Jesus has to say in the Gospels. I read the book of Revelation and I read these descriptions of the eternal destiny of those without Jesus Christ. I read of the torments of hell and the agony of hell and the eternal nature of hell and there is something within me that wishes, that desires. And I didn't have to believe it to be true. That, that I could believe in some way that simply when you die, that's the end of it. The Word of God does not give us that option. The call for you today is to trust in Jesus Christ, or this is the destiny that awaits you. This man was in physical torment and longed for the relief that even just a drop of water might bring to his parched, burning tongue. There was an emotional torment as well. He calls out, he, he sees Abraham far off. And he realizes there was something better. There was something that he could have had, and yet it was too late for him now. He knew that there was a better place, but that place was unattainable for him now. It's why Abraham's response to him is that there is a great chasm fixed. You can't come over here. They can't go over there. See, this is the call of the gospel, that, that today is the day of salvation. When death comes, there is no opportunity for you to say, can I get a mulligan? Can I get a do-over? No. Eternity is determined this side of death, not the other side. Here this man settles for the absolute worst that there could be. He thought he had the best. He thought he had everything. And yet he realizes that he has nothing but loss and agony and torment. Some people joke about hell. They look at it and say, oh, listen, really, it, it won't be that bad. That's where all my friends are going to be. And friends, understand this. It may be where your friends will be, but there will be no caring about you in hell. And you will care nothing about them in hell. Hell will be a place of utter loneliness, a place of utter desperation, terror, torment. Don't joke it away. Don't try to disregard it. As someone has said, hell is eternal desire, eternally unfulfilled. And here was this man, fully conscious of what was going on. Look at, look at verse 27. 
this, this man conscious of where he was. He felt the pain. He, 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 he mean, it means that, that he knew the destiny of those without Christ. He was aware of the truth that he had maligned and rejected. And in verse 27, he, he says, I beg you, Father, then send Lazarus to my father's house. Still not understanding. Lazarus is not your errand boy. Lazarus is enjoying the glories of what God has created for him. It's, it's ironic here as I read this. He said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Why? Because I've got five brothers. Let him go and warn them so that they don't come to this place of torment as well. It struck me as I was reading this just this week. It's perhaps a piece of irony that there's more evangelistic zeal in this man in hell than there is in most of us followers of Christ in the church. He knows what awaits them. Father Abraham says to him, no, they, they've got the Moses and they've got pro the prophets. Let them hear them. And this man in torment has the audacity to argue with Abraham. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's, it, it's interesting to me that as we read through this, we see this exchange between this rich man and Abraham, Abraham known as the father of the faithful. In verse 25, Abraham says to him, child, Remember, it's interesting that he refers to him as, as child. It, it, it was a rebuking indictment against this man of Jewish heritage. He said he believed what God had said. He said he believed the word of God given. And yet he failed to do the very basic things that God says his people should do. Jesus summed it up very clearly. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. That's not novel with Jesus. It occurs all the way back in the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy. Even back into Genesis. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. In reply to that, we are. This man claimed to know who God was and what God desired. And yet he failed to live it out within his life, living in rebellion and rejection against him. And so Abraham refers to him as child in this indictment. He called himself a son of Abraham. He, he claimed to be a son of Abraham. He rested in his boast of being a son of Abraham by heritage, by lineage. He was born into this. You find so many people within the church having the same notion, the same idea. I've been born into this. Mom and dad were good church-going people. Dad was a deacon. Mom uh, directed the choir. Mom taught Sunday school. Dad did this. Everything was going well in church, so if they're okay, I'm surely okay. Friends, God has no grandchildren. He has only children. You cannot ride the coattails of anyone into heaven. It comes as a result of personal relationship with Him alone. This man trusted in his lineage as a Jew. 
He trusted in what he knew, and yet he never acted upon what he knew. And after calling him son, Abraham says to him, Remember. I think that this might be one of the most agonizing aspects of an eternity without Christ. The memory of days just like this, where you heard the truth of the gospel message, but yet rejected Jesus. Memories of every Sunday school lesson you ever heard taught. Memories of every sermon you ever heard preached. Memory of every word spoken and witnessed to you. Memories of every pleading of friends and family members for you to trust in Jesus Christ. And the memory of every time you said no to the love and the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. How devastating. So he says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. No, no, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says to him, no. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What a powerful statement upon the sufficiency of the word of God within our lives. The Word of God is sufficient to bring us to an understanding of salvation. But we on the other side of this encounter have exactly what Abraham talks about. We have one who died and was raised back from the dead to live forever and ever. And yet some of you today remain unconvinced. Not because of intellectual arguments. Not because you don't understand it. But simply because there is an unwillingness within your heart to repent and bow the knee before King Jesus. Understand this morning as clearly as I can give the call today. Hear the Word of God and respond appropriately to it. You will find your eternal destiny changed, but you will find life on this earth changed as well. You see, this this rich man did not go to hell because he was rich. Don't step out and take that away from this. No. He didn't go to hell because he was rich. He didn't even go to hell because he was unmerciful to Lazarus. He went to hell because he rejected the grace of God given in salvation through Jesus Christ. See, it wasn't because of his unkindness that he went to hell. It was because he was destined for hell that he was unkind. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, He changes your priorities. No one can serve God and money. You're going to hate one, love the other. Serve one, despise the other. This rich man worshipped and served his possessions and all that he had. Lazarus had nothing but he worshipped 
God in the midst of his nothingness and found him faithful with eternity. Who are you in this event? Are you like the rich man, lost, unrepentant, rejecting of Christ? Or are you like Lazarus, trusting in God, even when the circumstances of this life don't necessarily make sense? Who are you in this? What will you do as a result? If you are like this rich man, maybe, maybe not in the accumulation of wealth and possessions, you may not have much materially. But it may be the case that your heart is just as hardened as his was to the message of the gospel. Will you today trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done on your behalf in providing salvation to you? Or will you continue to reject and harden your heart hoping and praying that this is not the day that you step into eternity. Would you pray with me, please, this morning? Father, as we come to this moment, we are mindful of just how serious a moment it is. You have over the past several weeks reminded us that our hope cannot be in anything other than Jesus Christ. We, we have seen that whatever we have is designed to be used by you for the purpose of your kingdom. You have reminded us that you have given to us so that we might in turn give to others. So, Father, I pray that you would develop within the hearts and lives of your people a generous spirit, unhindered by the love of money, material possessions, set free by the power of the gospel. I pray today, Father, for those especially who do not know you through Jesus Christ. Father, would you please this day open eyes and hearts to the reality of an eternity separated from Jesus. That this might be the day for many to profess faith in Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. This morning we celebrate the second of our ordinances as well. The first one, baptism, that so very clearly indicates the sacrifice of Christ made on our behalf. And now of the Lord's Supper as well that indicates for us the sacrifice of Christ made on our behalf. We have the bread that represents the body of Christ given for us. He was dead, literally, physically. He was buried, literally, physically. 
the drink that reminds us of the blood that He shed for us, that we might have forgiveness and redemption. And so today we'll invite you to take part in this meal with us together. As we have done in the past, we'll, we'll invite those of you who are followers of Christ to take part in this meal with us. If you're not a follower of Christ, we invite you to observe, to see the gospel played out in front of your eyes this morning. That this might be the day you realize your need for a Savior. So I'm going to invite Pastor Stephen to come and help this morning. I'm going to ask our deacons if they would to help as well with the, the drink also. We're going to invite you to come from both sides here and meet in the middle and, and come forward and take part in receiving the elements. As you take the bread, you're welcome to take that and to eat that together, showing your personal faith in Jesus Christ, that this is a personal decision you have made. Then we invite you to step to either side and grab one of the cups and return to your seat where we will drink that collectively together as a body, showing that although this is a personal decision, it is not made in a vacuum. It is not made in isolated fashion. We are together as a body of believers receiving this. If you need assistance of some sort, please feel free just to raise your hand and someone will come to help you. If you're unable to make your way to the front, we'll be glad to help. And also, as a reminder, if for uh, reasons of allergy you need a gluten-free, we have those available as well. Just let us know and we'll help with that. So let's pray together, and after we pray, I'll invite you to come and we'll share the Lord's Supper together. Father, this morning again, we are grateful to you for the salvation we have received in Christ. We pray today that as we partake of these elements, we would be reminded again of your mercy given to us in Jesus. That we have a Savior who is willing to give his life on our behalf. And you have united us together as a body of believers. So bless this time and this observance today we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to come this morning.